If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, July the 1st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow. Our guest, plural today here in our recording, uh, recording studio on the campus of Stanford University, are David Brady and Doug Rivers. Dave Brady is the Davies Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers, likewise, is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Stanford University political scientist. He's also the Chief Scientist at YouGov PLC, a global polling firm, and he owns what I think is one of the best self-descriptions on Twitter, and it reads, quote, absent-minded professor, sometime entrepreneur, pollster, and econometrician. Dave, let's start this off with your take on the debates. So we had two nights of Democratic debates last week, uh, Wednesday and Thursday nights in Miami. Ten candidates a night. Pretty crowded stage, we could agree, uh, but better than 20 at once. Um, Your take on what these candidates were trying to achieve, and as you look at this field of 20, and yes, there are 20 candidates, but really there are probably about a half a dozen who are viable at this point. Let's talk a bit about where they're trying to position themselves vis-a-vis the left, the center, and the general electorate. Sure, I think that uh, on the, uh, that Sanders and uh, Warren mm-hmm. are competing for the revolutionary spot, the one that Bernie had right. in the past election. De Blasio is uh, so, sort of in that in, in that mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the other end are uh, Biden, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, O'Rourke, sort of a Delaney, not not going to be very relevant, but they're they're trying to place themselves as centrist. And I think uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Booker, and Gillibrand, although she's not playing well, uh, Harris is trying to place herself between the left and the center and capture both of those spots. Um, uh, so that's, that's where they try to place themselves. Uh, I guess I wonder how much during the debate uh, there seemed like everybody was for uh, open borders or close to it. Right. The question about uh, 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 Medicare for all, uh, there was some, some disagreement about that, but lots of people uh, saying so. So, so I, I wonder about that read. Now, obviously, they're trying to win the Democratic primary nomination, so they don't have to, at this point, appeal to Republicans. But you wonder, uh, it does seem to me that they are dragging the centrist Democrats a bit more left than they'd like to be. Right, you're right. So the Democrats are obviously competing for you know that sliver of the vote in Iowa that comes out in in, uh, in mm-hmm. uh, early February, the New Hampshire vote, the South Carolina vote, the Nevada vote moving forward, California and so forth. But it's a national broadcast, and it was a very the Thursday night one drew 18.1 million viewers. This is a record for a Democratic presidential mm-hmm. debate. Uh, you go back to October of 2015, I believe, and the Hillary Bernie show drew about 15.9. Mm-hmm. So there are more eyeballs watching, but this is a challenge for the Democratic Party. The more people watch, not necessarily pure liberal Democrats are watching. It's also people sitting out, let's say, in the upper Midwest. And when they see a show of hands on, do you want to give health care to, to non-citizens? Uh, where are you on borders and so forth? I think, Dave, these show of hand questions are just deadly for whoever's going to be the nominee. Yeah, I, particularly Kamala Harris, who 
uh, again raised her hand, uh, uh, so and I believe the third time, saying right. that she would get rid of uh, insurance, yeah. health care insurance, and then walking it back the next day saying, oh, I misheard the question. So I, I do think that uh, show of hands stuff is uh, deadly. Right. And that's the third time she's done this, and the third time is not the charm for her. This is a right. problem. But she raises her hand high in the sky in these questions. And if you looked at Joe Biden, not to read too much into this, Joe Biden on a couple of occasions, Dave, he would raise his hand, but he'd sort of raise it maybe yeah. parallel to his yeah. shoulder. So yeah. sort of, yeah, yeah. I kind yeah. of am in favor I'm of this. I'm not all the way there. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to quite notice yeah. me. In fact, the moderators at one point asked him, did yeah. you raise your hand or I, not? I do think well, the one thing... Uh, I'm always amazed at the com- well, always amazed at the commentating after the election. So amazed that I never watch it any longer, because what I mean, what they do is they take their own views and right. they want Harris, so they push that view. But none of them uh, take to me the reasonable view, which is to say, imagine yourself in the shoes. You're watching the Democratic debate or the Republicans; it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Put yourself in the position of a pollster for the other party or a campaign manager. Right. And it's exactly what you said. It looks like there's going to decriminalize the border. It looks like there's going to be health insurance for people illegal crossing the border. Now, that looks good when you're appealing to that sliver of the voters. It's going to turn out in Iowa and New Hampshire, South Carolina and Nevada, the first four retail primaries. But you can just see the commercials. And you, I see the commercial on Kamala Harris. Are you for it or not? Flip, flop, flip, flop. Yeah. And uh, so it seemed to me there was, uh, there was meat for the Trump campaign there. Video is the gift that keeps giving. If you go back to the 2004 campaign with uh, George W. Bush and John Kerry, Probably the worst thing that happened to John Kerry was what? That video of him wind sailing, where yes. they show him wind sailing one way and wind sailing yep. the other direction. Video is deadly. Let's talk about Joe Biden for a second, yep. Dave. This is, on the one hand, this is a man after your own heart in some regards. He is yep. in his late 70s. Yep. Uh, he has been involved in the political arena. Stop me if this doesn't sound familiar, but he's been dabbling in politics since the early 1970s. Uh, and he's a man who doesn't have enough legs, Dave, because he already has two legs in at least two camps. He has one leg in the Barack Obama. Uh, Mm -hmm. years, the eight years he was Barack Obama's vice president, and he wants to plant another leg in today's Democratic Party. Meanwhile, you have Kamala Harris trying to plant a third Biden leg back in the 70s with busing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me a bit about the issue of busing as you see it, because this this intrigues me in this regard. Uh, Kamala Harris obviously came ready for this. Uh, You don't put out that picture of her as a little girl on the internet, which they did within seconds after the debate was over, you're ready. I saw a story saying they talked about this in the campaign for several weeks, just kind of you know ambushing Biden on this. But the issue of busing, Dave, it strikes me as, first of all, uh, a topic where if you poll the American people, how many American people under the age of 40 know what busing is, first of all? But secondly, if you are trying to interject race into a presidential debate, she did it, I thought, pretty effectively, because if you listen to the complete soundbite, she does not call Joe Biden a racist, and she goes as far as to say, I don't think you're a racist. On the, other but, hand, on the other hand, she's saying, I consider you one incredibly insensitive person when it comes to the plight of African Americans. Yeah. And Biden, even though if you look at the video, and I've watched this debate a couple of times afterwards, I I've always am careful to watch debates a couple of times because we live in this culture of hot takes. You know, journalists just run out in mass and just start right. writing right for these things. That's kind of a, a herd mentality. It helps to go back and look at the debate. And what you see is that Biden actually, his answer wasn't all that bad. He didn't show any terrible reaction. He didn't scowl at her. He didn't correct her. He didn't talk down to her. Um, 
but it was flat-footed. And one thing missing was saying that, do you really think that I could be Barack Obama's vice president for eight years and all that he stood for and be insensitive to race? He wasn't there on that. But give me your take on what Joe Biden is trying to do here and what you think he has to do moving forward. Well, he, he is going to get beat up from the left. There's a lot right. of people that don't want him to be the candidate. They say he's the past. It's right. the Buttigieg. It's just the young people. Time to pass the torch. Uh, that, even that quote was uh, brought up. Mm -hmm. uh, but the point is that uh, still a majority, a big majority of Democrats, when asked, who do they want? Someone who's ideologically closer to me or they want someone who can win? So Joe Biden has to continue to make people believe that he could win. So he'll continue to show the polls where he beats uh, Trump in the key states. He'll, and he did fall in the debate. He lost, looks to me like he lost about five points from his uh, earlier lead. Uh, Sanders lost a little in the debates too. And it's true, Harris, uh, looks to me like Harris and uh, Warren are about now tied for third place. Right. But, but the question for Biden is, can, can, he, uh, can he still win? And in those debates, they're obviously going to work against him in a sense because they're trying to appeal to that section of the electorate right. that, in fact, um, he he's doesn't fully represent. So he's got he's to take the position that I can win in presidential I can win the presidential election. These people can't. Right. He uh, didn't draw that out as well as he could have, but it wasn't much of a format with one minute. I don't I don't see how you could really attack people for saying, you know, if you actually want to take health insurance away from the majority of Americans who have it and like it, right. if you think that's a winning issue. But he didn't get a chance to do that. So so we'll see. We will see. Uh you know, candidates, Dave, they're not like wine. They don't they don't age well if you put them in the cellar for years on end. I think candidates are like foliage in that they hit a certain kind of bloom period, if you will, and they peak at a certain mm -hmm. time. And I'm looking at one Bernie Sanders and thinking that maybe he peaked in 2015 and 2016. I, I look at the Sanders campaign, Dave, and I think it might be a matter of Bernie is losing the battle yet again. Um, we can talk about the polling numbers, but it would appear that Elizabeth Warren has momentum that Bernie had in 2015. She yep. is a newer version of him and in some regards kind of a more polished even feistier version of him uh especially in terms of her attack on you know class yeah. class wealth if you will she's after after wall street plan yeah. and simple whereas bernie's more after the political yeah. class but let me posit this to you uh which can't you argue that bernie sanders is a great example of losing a battle he may be losing a second battle but he's winning the war and that when these questions are asked about the Democratic Party writ large on questions about health care, on various questions, it is invariably a decidedly left of center, call it socialist if you want to, but it's really playing into the Bernie's agenda. So even though Bernie is not didn't win the nomination the last time, even though he may not win it this time, he's moving the party in his direction, or at least the party I, has moved in his direction. I absolutely agree. He uh, he has fallen. He lost, uh, he lost some votes. Uh, he, it, not only did he lose some people who say that he'd be my first choice right. uh, in the Democratic primary, he lost people who said he might be my second choice, mm -hmm. and he also lost among people who uh, said his popularity. He actually became less popular. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right. If you looked at the kind of uh, the, uh, positions that Hillary Clinton took in 2016 right. against him, there's nobody uh, really at this point uh, taking, uh, taking those positions. Maybe if the field gets a little bit 
uh, smaller if the debates, as you mentioned, maybe next time the debate. Well, in fact, we should probably talk about that. Uh, what would happen in your view? And you're telling me the debate's going to be smaller next time. Next debate that affects things. Right. Next debate at the end of July, Dave is in Milwaukee, and uh, different standards for this last debate. The standard was uh, you had to be at one percent in a handful of national polls, and you had to have sixty-five thousand supporters online. Uh, as we saw by the fact that twenty out of the twenty-three candidates uh, managed to make the stage, including a few who just really have no business running for president. That's a pretty easy standard in this day and age to reach. So now the party is made. It's kind of like running a soccer game, I guess, and that everybody gets yeah. a trophy for participation. So now the uh, Democratic National Committee is upping the game, if you will, upping the ante. And the ante for the end of July is you now have to be at 2% in national polls, and you have to have at least 130,000 supporters. Um, this is why if you're a political junkie like me and you sign up for all of these campaigns, uh, emails, because I like to see what they're pushing out there, yesterday was just a spam fest. Uh, Elizabeth Warren in particular who's not taking corporate money, so she really relies upon individual donors. She was after me about a half a dozen times yesterday just asking for money, asking for my support. Ditto Jay Inslee. Ditto a lot of these candidates, Dave, who are at the 1% to 2% fringe uh, and also not making 130000 Now, if you apply that standard to the field as it stands, and let's keep in mind that we're doing this on July the 1st. Last night was the deadline for the second quarter of the FEC right. fundraising. About two weeks from now, we'll see what the candidates hauled in in the numbers. Uh, so we don't know who's going to make the cut. But if you applied that standard after the first debate, to the second debate, you'd have five candidates on the stage right now. You would have Biden, you would have Sanders, you'd have Warren, you would have Harris, and um, you would have Buttigieg. And so you would not have Beto right now. You would not have Cory Booker. Right. That's a very prominent names missing. Now let's let's suppose the field maybe jumps up to ten or so. So now you can do this one of two ways. You can do either two nights of five candidates, but I don't think that makes sense. You would right. do ten at once. So you're right. It's now a smaller field, a more refined field. Goodbye, Marianne Williamson. Goodbye, Bill de Blasio. Goodbye, a lot of people who are just sort of, yeah. you, know, you know, additional fluff. So now you're down to kind of the hardcore 10, the hardcore 5 are going to drive this thing. But again, the question, Dave, of we keep hearing this in, in these polls, the question of electability. The one thing that stands out, Democrats want somebody who can beat Donald Trump. They want somebody electable. But yet you watched that debate on Wednesday and Thursday night, and they kept getting asking kept getting asked questions, answering questions in such a way that would suggest real problems in those three or four states they have to win back. Right. I, I think that's right. Uh, so in that second debate, I guess the problem would be it would give Biden and Buttigieg a chance to talk about issues that make them centrist and the claim that they could win. Mm -hmm. It, On the other hand, Sanders and Warren uh, could fight it out to see who's going to be the candidate on the left. Right. But And then Harris, however, and then so the question is that might put Harris in a good position because she can sort of attack mm -hmm. Biden. Right and Buttigieg on race issues because of what's happening in South Bend. And then on the other hand, she could uh, attack the left just not being too central. That might, that might give her an advantage, but, mm -hmm. you know, it all, it all depends how, how it plays out, right? I think she got away with it the first time because she wasn't nasty. Right. But uh, at the debate, when it goes on and there's more free flow and they can go back and forth to each other, we'll, we'll see what happens. I doubt Biden will get angry at anything, which is uh, which could be an advantage. 
Yeah. Um, I think the other caution here for Kamala Harris is how hard you go after Joe Biden. All the Democrats yep. have to think through this. Yep. Yes, he is the front runner. Yes, that means he has a bullseye on his back. And yes, he's target rich because he has decades of service in the Senate. And he's of a different generation of a Democratic Party, right. the one that used to work with Republicans right. in the Senate and so forth. So very inviting. On the other hand, he's not Hillary Clinton. He is not automatically polarizing, and he also doesn't come in necessarily with the same baggage that she had in 2015, which we tend to overlook. And that when she ran in 2015, 2016, she had to account for a lot of years in transition. I think, by the way, Hillary Clinton is somebody who doesn't get enough credit right now for her effect on the political process. You go back to 2008, Dave, she was Barack Obama's foil. And she gets partial credit for Barack Obama becoming the Democratic nominee and the president. If you go to 2016, she was Donald Trump's foil. And she gets some credit for Donald Trump being president. If a different Democrat, maybe he doesn't win. And she is Bernie's foil in 2016 as well. And maybe the Democratic Party is not as you know much a Bernie fest right now if Hillary doesn't run. Um, I did some uh, digging before this podcast, uh, Dave. And I found, um, I want to ask you this question about just this land rush that we get into on debate reaction. Uh, let me throw some numbers at you and get your thoughts here. I went back to July of 2007 uh, when Clinton and Obama were debating. July of 2007, the consensus among polls that she has a lead of anywhere of 9 to 21 points. She does not get the nomination. Uh, July of 2011, Mitt Romney, who does end up getting the nomination, he has a very narrow lead over the likes of Rick Perry, Sarah Palin, Rudy Giuliani, and Michelle Bachman. Those are four people who either A, did not run, or B, they didn't run very long. <laughs> and if you go to July 2015, Donald Trump has a lead, anywhere from 2 to 15 points. Um, I raise these because I just wonder, and we're joined now by Doug Rivers, do we not just sort of get too swept up in the moment in the July before November of the next year election? Doug, Doug jump, jump in. Yeah, you bet. Uh, no. Elizabeth Warren had a bad few uh, weeks at the yeah. beginning of the year, and she was written off, and now she's back. Uh, Kamala Harris had a you know, strong announcement, and then she was she was dying she was dying on the vine before the debate. And uh, <laughs> she's probably the big winner of right. the uh, first debates. Um, you know, it's way too early. These right. things are not very predictive at this point. Um, our problem in the past is. Um, the lesson of 2012 is that candidates rise and fall quickly, um, and therefore you shouldn't um, pay any attention to the polls. Right. The lesson of 2016 was Donald Trump went up and never fell, so right. uh, that's leading to people to treat 2020 like it was 2016. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just have no clue at the moment. <laughs> Uh, what's going to happen. Then let's talk about some data that you came with. But before we get into your data, let me ask you this question. Uh, let me ask this to both of you, since you both spend a lot of time reading polls. Um, it is very easy to get swept up in these narratives. Kamala had a big night. Biden had a terrible night. Um, I'm not going to give away the name of the person on TV, but one person declared his candidacy over. Another person on TV said she's going to be the next nominee. We get very emotional. But you two, as political scientists and readers of polls, Tell me what you look at in terms of data after a poll, not just in terms of who rose and who fell, but take us within the game of reading the results. What, what stands out to you? You go first so I can contradict you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first thing you do is you look at what we call the internals mm -hmm. of uh, how subgroups are moving. Right. And does that paint a consistent picture or at least a uh, comprehensible one. Uh, at the top line of your survey, you see all sorts of bounces. 
um, and that's what we saw this week. So mm -hmm. the question is, who's moving around? Is it people um, who were unlikely to vote in Democratic primaries, people who weren't paying attention, uh, or was it core voters? Mm -hmm. um, so in, in our poll, we re-interviewed the same people on Tuesday and Friday, so we can see what differences there were um, after Wednesday and Thursday night's debates. You, you do several polls. Which poll are you referring to? Um, this is uh, a one-off that one -off. I ran uh, before the debates and looked at after the debates. Okay. So, uh, first interviews on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, mm -hmm. second interviews on Thursday, on Friday or Saturday morning. Okay. Um, so it's before the media spin is set in. Right. Um, and what's it show? Uh, so of, of people who watched the debate, there was less movement than people who didn't watch the debate. So a lot of what you're seeing is fluff. Um, you know, that people are getting it kind of secondhand. Well, let's repeat that. You're telling me that there was less movement among people who watched the debate versus those who did not. That's right. What so percent watched it in the sample? So in, in the sample, 40% uh, said they watched. Uh, mm -hmm. The real number is probably more like around 25%. Yeah. Based. Right. So um, I think it was 18 million households and about another 10 million or so right. uh, streaming. Right. Um, it, those were big numbers watching the debates. It's, it was the first time. Right. Um, but uh, a lot of the movement is fluff. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second is within looking candidate by candidate. Um, and um, so Harris is, was um, certainly strong. She was kept the highest percentage of her pre-debate um, voters. Uh, so typically candidates are keeping anywhere from 60 to 80% of their um, pre-debate uh, voters express the same preference uh, mm -hmm. after the fact. Right. Um, <clears throat> some of the small candidates, which had very small bases to start with, uh, had lower numbers. Uh, but Biden was at 75% and Harris was at 79% in terms of retaining support. So it didn't hurt. I, I had the same the thing. It didn't hurt Biden. Biden so he's, not shedding, hurt. he's not shedding voters, <clears throat> at least that's what you're saying. The first look of people who, um, if you look at individual level change, there wasn't that much. Mm -hmm. Harris did pick up quite a bit, but where she picked up from were Booker, Klobuchar, O'Rourke, uh, you know, a set of candidates that weren't doing very well before the debate. Also, a lot of candidates who weren't on that stage that night, too. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there's a pool of people who are, a uh, pool of candidates getting a few percent out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, who are likely to disappear before January. I don't think they'll make it to the Iowa caucuses. Uh, I can't believe, you know, for example, Kristen Gillibrand really wants to go through this. Uh, Michael Bennett. Uh, they're not going to have enough donors to uh, make it anyway. Right, right. Um, so I think the, the view that the debates really move things a lot is, at least at this stage, premature. Uh, our data suggests less movement than uh, some other public. Uh, I kind of forgot. No, I remember the question. <laughs> we <bought. laughs> uh, No, the question was how do I read polls? Not as thoroughly as Doug does, apparently. Uh, 
So I look at the, I, I don't look at the top line. I try and look at uh, what Doug talked about, the movement. Mm -hmm. So on these polls, I want to know uh, Democrats or Republicans and independents, mm -hmm. and I kind of don't care on the Democratic problem or what, what the Republicans say. Mm -hmm. So I look at Democrats and independents. I look at uh, whether they moved or not, and then I looked at whether they're liberals. So if, if you look on uh, some other polls Doug Russ runs on the YouGov Economist poll, uh, if you ask, you'd be disappointed if who got the nomination. Turns out on that one, it, some Democrats say, I'd be very disappointed if Biden got it. Guess what? They turn out to be very liberal Democrats. Right. They're the ones that are the conservatives. Don't want For Elizabeth Warren, conservative or moderate Democrats say, oh, no, I don't, I don't want her. So I, I try to look at uh, wh where the movement is uh, among those people. And I, I got the same result from sort of different sources that he did. I didn't think Biden, Biden got hurt a little bit, not much. I do think Harris came up. Warren, uh, Warren did all right. But all the stuff about Julian Castro doing well, I think he did do well in the debate, but he, he's still at zero. Uh, and and so you know he had he had that amount of vote. He did overall. Beto Beto slipped, seems to me. Right. But and Inslee, you know he he's uh, running on uh, he's running on climate change, and it looks like it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Doug Rivers, have you done his climate hasn't changed? Doug have, you, <laughs> Doug, have you done any polls in the last ten years in which you have asked the question about busing? <laughs> I cannot remember. Asking about that, I thought that issue died about uh, 25, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the thing it's closest to is affirmative action. Yes. Um, and uh, affirmative action was highly unpopular uh, at the time busing was occurring. Mm -hmm. um, it's become more popular, right. um, particularly among Democrats. Uh, so it's an issue that divides the parties. Yes. Um, and I think on busing, if it's discussed again, it's going to be one of those issues that uh, does so-so among Democrats and terribly among the population at large. I don't think people are craving to bring back school well, busing. Yeah, remember the bus, the busing, the busing issues affected Democrats because just take Boston with uh, Louise Hicks. The the Boston districts where they were trying to do the busing and that there was the greatest opposition. Right. They were Democrats. They were the Italian, and there that was the North End, that was the Southeast, and uh, that that was uh, true across the country. That was true in Biden's Delaware. Right. So, so the question was: the the difference is, they're now they're now Republicans. So, uh, to bring it back up in that sense, is there? And and so we'll see. The other thing is: is Biden or somebody going to bring up? As Kamala gets higher, seems to me at some point people are going to bring up what kind of an attorney general she was. And they're going to say, you prosecuted more minorities. Some, that's one of the criticisms. You prosecuted yeah. more minorities than you should. They, they so we'll see. I don't see. think a Democrat being a tougher prosecutor is going to hurt in the general election. It might hurt. No, I agree. I'm talking about the primary. Right. But yeah, so I tried to guess in advance mm -hmm. what issues they would talk about. Um, and then as I was watching them, I was writing various things down mm -hmm. um, and inserting those into our um, post-debate poll. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really striking the kind of range of issues that go from ones where they are um, something that would be popular both in a primary and a general mm -hmm. and ones that would be highly unpopular in a general election and not all that popular in a primary. 
among all Democratic voters. For instance? Um, well, to give you an example um, um, of something that's popular among Democratic voters and uh, the public at large is universal health care. Right. So if you're in favor of Obamacare or something where the government takes a role in health care, Democrats are 64 to 9 in favor, Republicans 21 to 59 against, but overall the population is 40 to 31 in favor. Um, but then you go to something like Medicare for all or versus a public option. So um, I followed up the people who are in favor of universal health care and said, mm -hmm. which one would you prefer? Public option wins 50 to 46 among Democrats in favor of universal health care. 50 to 46, wow, well, okay. Okay, among Republicans, very few are in favor of universal health care, right. but the only thing they favor is uh, public option. So that's the suburban voters, which Democrats need to win in the general election. And then among independents in favor of universal health care, public option wins 55-45. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it looked good on stage to, in front of a highly Democratic audience, uh, to raise your hand and say you're in favor of Medicare for all, mm -hmm. as Elizabeth Warren did and maybe as Kamala Harris did. She did not. Right. She backed off. Well. <laughs> Doug, there was also a show of hands when asked, would you give health care to legal immigrants? Yes. Yeah, so docu docu documented Americans, I guess, was how they phrased it. Interesting tell, by the way, I yeah. thought in the question, uh, at one point one of the NBC um, moderators said, uh, accused uh, Obama of deporting three million Americans, which I thought was kind of an interesting little slip there, because technically an illegal immigrant's not an American. But, but no, there was a show of hands over the question of, would you give health care to non-citizens? Um, yes, and so that's interesting. Um, I'm curious, first of all, as to the Democratic number on this. Yeah, so the Democratic number, Democrats 47-22 in favor. 47-22. Yeah. So not a majority then. Right. Okay. Uh, Republicans, 17-68 to 68 against. Mm -hmm. Public at large, 29 in favor, 46 against. So there's, um, your, there's your Trump ad. Yeah. Um, so... Um, I asked two other questions about immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, the first was, do you favor a path to citizenship? Democrats, 79 to 10 in favor. Republicans, 44, 41 against. Uh, overall, uh, 56, 29. Mm -hmm. okay, so that's not a great way to frame the issue for Republicans. It's, right. um, the wall, <coughs> Democrats, 13 in favor, 77 against. Republicans, 83 in favor. Uh, 10 against. Uh, overall, 42 in favor, 43 against. Um, so uh, these issues depend entirely on how you frame them. Right. Uh, but the Democratic base has got a position that's quite a bit away from the middle of the electorate. And I think Democrats are just kidding themselves. It doesn't matter what position. So then let me throw this at you two fellows. Um, you watched the debates. Um, give me a, for instance, where... Um, the Democratic candidates answered a question in such a way that would play in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in the states that are going to decide the election. I guess I should throw Florida in there as well. Did you at any moment see the Democrats taking a position that you think will win by I the must states? have missed it. I thought Biden and uh, Buttigieg did that. Buttigieg, uh, when he said, uh, when he said uh, we're going to get rid of uh, 
the debt. Right. He said, you know, why should blue-collar people pay that? Mm -hmm. They didn't go to college. That was a perfectly straightforward right. answer that plays in uh, Indiana and Wisconsin and Michigan. And I think Biden generally did nothing to hurt himself in those states where he continues to uh, beat Trump pretty handily. Mm -hmm. I don't know. My feeling is they had a 10-year for how to cast those issues in a way that would be effective in the Midwest. Um, it, it's, you know, interestingly, Trump has made tariffs, his approach, and that polls incredibly badly. You know, so we ask people, do you think tariffs help or uh, hurt the average American? Um, and overall, the public is 23% um, is, uh, uh, think it um, helps. No, it hurts 47% uh, helps. Cool. Um, well, among Democrats, it's, uh, it's the reverse, 73 in favor, 8 against. Okay. Well, and that's till they really start to hurt. Right. Uh, yeah. Two topics that didn't get a very long discussion in the debates. One was impeachment. Um, I was surprised the NBC moderators didn't say, let's see a show of hands on impeaching Donald Trump. Yes. But they didn't go there. And then the second conversation they didn't really get into was free college. All right. So, which is uh, which um, is a centerpiece I of the, write down of the, the work keeping numbers. Right. They've been pretty stable. I've, I've so got them. You've so, got them. Okay. So Democrats are in favor of impeachment. Overall, the public at large is slightly opposed. Exactly right. Sixty four. Sixty four percent of Democrats favor. Right. Republicans eighty percent against. And independents lean against it by about fifteen points. Right. All right. So forgiving student debt. Mm -hmm. Democrats fifty eight in favor. Sixteen opposed. Republicans. 24 in favor, 64 opposed. Um, overall, uh, 39 in favor, 38 opposed. It's not a great wedge issue. But no, not a great it wedge issue. It polls well among Democrats, and I'm sure it polls very well among current and recent college graduates. So and young people. Who are a big, big constituency group mm -hmm. for Democrats. So let me ask you guys a question. If you're running a university and you're under pressure to lower your costs, why are you going to lower your cost if you know that you <laughs> are leaving is going to get the to president? The, the new president of Harvard wrote uh, an article. I had kind of wondered about him because he didn't have what would be considered the normal sort of academic background uh -huh. for be president of Harvard. But I got an article from him about uh, four months ago, and it's actually brilliant. He says, "You know, why don't costs go down?" And he goes over all the major constituencies, parents, right. donors. No one's in favor of bringing down costs. The only place where that might happen is in big state universities. And even there, if you look at uh, Berkeley, Michigan, what they're doing is, uh, is admitting as many out-of-state and foreign students as they can and charging the hell out of tuition. That's the only way they can stay, stay as great universities. Well, free cells. Mm -hmm. um, so... Anything that sounds like a freebie is, is going to have uh, uh, some support. Mm -hmm. um, it's also the case, it's classic one of these issues where it's concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Right. And so if you have $200,000 of student debt, the idea of getting out from under that um, would motivate you quite a bit. Right. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't, um, you know, even the, uh, you know, $1.7 trillion is no larger than 
uh, the Republican tax bill, uh, which didn't generate huge opposition to right. the giveaway for uh, small businesses. By the way, I looked up when they passed the debate changing the way student loan was given and the government would take on the responsibility. And it is incredible how it was talked about. This is a way to make sure that the tax coffers of the United States are full. This guarantees Social Security because all these kids will go to college and they'll pay the things back and they'll be working and making more. It's just unbelievable. And now suddenly, oh, it's a big mistake. $1.7 trillion. But I, I don't disagree with Doug. Plays to where it plays. Doesn't play where it doesn't play. It does. Let me ask you a question, guys, as a recovering speechwriter. Uh, if I'm writing a speech for a candidate, uh, it's very simple. I know I have to introduce my candidate based on his or her biography, kind of what their shtick is, what their specialty is, where they stand out. But then at the crux of that speech is the question of what does this audience want to hear? It's the first mistake every speechwriter makes. A speechwriter thinks, this is what I think what they want to hear, but the speechwriter doesn't take it from the audience's perspective what they want to hear. You gentlemen are looking at the results of these polls, and you're looking at how issues are playing. If I came to you, Dave and Doug, and said, give me four issues that I need to bring up that is going to appeal to this Democratic audience right now, what four issues would you suggest? Well, I think it's a mistake to think that it's the same issue for each candidate, because right. if they all bring up the same issues, um, they don't move from where they are. Right. So what you have with 23 candidates or 24 candidates or however many we have today is each one is looking for an issue they can own that will move people towards them. Well, then let's narrow it down to two people then. Let's start with Joe Biden, who's a very familiar face in the Democratic Party and has a long record, but is also trying to adapt himself to a changed landscape. And let's take Kamala Harris, who is a relatively fresh face in the Congress since 2016 and is trying to be the new kid on the block right now. So what would you suggest to good old Joe from Scranton, PA? Uh, my advice for him would be um, to hope there are no issues in this race mm -hmm. uh, because his strength is uh, you want a caretaker for the presidency to uh, restore uh, sanity to the White House. Uh, the non-Donald Trump, it's Joe Biden. Right. Um, he can, you know, his, his pitch is I can win the election. Uh, I'm a good, solid liberal Democrat uh, despite various... Uh, times in the past when I send on busing and the Hyde Amendment and so forth, um, but it, it's a non-issue appeal, which is a tough one in a primary. Right. I think he, uh, I don't quite agree, I think he has to say I can win, I agree with that. Uh, I would bring up health care then, and I would say uh, I'm not for social, I'm not for what they're talking about. I'm for expanding the President's Affordable Care Act. He said that. That's an issue that plays with uh, Democrats. The cost would be too much. You could see that, that, that would play for him. But he tried health care in the debate, saying, you know, Obamacare was a big achievement. Kind of I was one, there right. at Barack Obama's yeah. side making that happen. 30 seconds. And there, well, okay, so we're talking about a debate. Flat, we're Democratic talking about a base wants more than Obamacare. But it also well, falls flat in part because you want to take a bar of soap to Joe Biden's mouth and wash it out in this regard. He has the similar problem what Hillary had in 2016 and what John Kerry had in 2004 and what Bob Dole 
terribly had in 1996, and that is they've been junked up by too many years in the Senate, where invariably you start answering questions by throwing programs at people. Right. Oh, we're going to put $400 billion into this and $300 million into that and X, Y, and Z. I remember in 1996, the moment when I realized uh, Bob Dole had lost the election, not that he really had any chance, but he really lost it, he was asked, what would you do about health care? And he went into five minutes about how Pete Domenici had a bill and markup in the Senate. Yeah. And just <laughs> good night. But I, I do think that he Biden won the political science vote. Well, I, oh, yeah. I also, I also, I'm going to continue to disagree with Doug. On the, the question is the base may not, the base may not want it, but right. actually, if you poll among Democrats and you saw what the costs, <laughs> what the costs of taking everybody's insurance away, it does work. Right. And he can continue to bang away at that if right. they get the field down to five or six. I, if I were Kamala Harris, I, I think you have to, she has to show that uh, she's uh, can, she's competent. She can do. She's been very good on prosecutorial questions yes. in the Senate, and she was good at that in the one-minute shot at uh, Biden. Uh, she has yet to show command of issues, so I think she has to pick some issues, and that. That strikes me of a little bit more of a problem for her. On health care, she can't outdo Warren and Sanders, right? And so she's gotten caught. She flip-flopped on that three times. So I, I think for her, that's, for me, you ask that question about what does she say, I can't think of three issues that are ones that she should pick on and own on her own. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you saw the issue that she picked, and it's a good one for her, which is I'm that little girl who was being bust, and she's the African-American candidate that's going, I think, is going to survive um, till the early primaries. Uh, right. That Cory Booker does not seem How does that win for you? Uh, African-Americans are the single biggest constituency group right. uh, among the Democrats. Not in Iowa, not in New Hampshire, not in Nevada. Well, there's a state called South, South Carolina. Carolina. And at this right. point, I might add, in South Carolina, Biden is beating her by 22 points among blacks. Yeah, and at this point in 2008, uh, Hillary Clinton was beating Barack Obama. Uh, I'm willing to wager you that uh, when it gets the down to black it, I, voters. So what would you? What would you bet? What would you bet that uh, Biden does so bad? You would say he does badly. So I would say he might lose. Survey question. Yeah, he might. Know. He might, he might lose, but not that badly. I, I don't think she's got the black vote locked up at all. She I can try for that. I don't think she has that. the black vote locked up. No, she can try. She's chipping but away. It is a, right. If you can take that away from Biden, it's a big chunk of his support at the moment. Right. And uh, very hard for a Democratic candidate to last through the bigger primaries. I agree with Dave on yeah. right, New Hampshire and Iowa. Uh, but uh, if, if you really are getting uh, African-American voters... Uh, that's a big group in the Democratic primaries. Um, what she has to do in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire is uh, finish second. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's high. You think she will? I think she could. In I Iowa mean, it, it, in Iowa and New Hampshire, or, or just well, one of them? One San- of them. You have to make it. Sanders is going to win New Hampshire. Where you have more typical Democratic electorates. Right. Sanders. Iowa and New Hampshire are not typical of most states. Um, and so the role they play is they take you from 24 candidates mm-hmm. to three. Right. 
uh, that's going to cause her people to rethink their strategy because they have not put a lot of effort. She's been to New Hampshire a bunch, but she really doesn't have a ground game there. Right. Iowa the same way. She's pretty much bet big on South Carolina. Let's talk about another group of Democratic voters, and that is millennials, the 18 to 34-year-olds. Um, this is why the busing issue interests me, um, Doug, because you raised something that was relevant 40 years ago. People were passionate about angry about 40 years ago. That means that older Democrats will have a ready opinion about it because they will have lived through it. And younger Democrats will not know what you're talking about necessarily. But if it's perceived in some way as vaguely racist, then it will appeal to them. So in that regard, it's, this strikes me as a very clever attack by her, both to go after black voters, but also young voters at the same time. Uh, agreed. Yeah. And Biden's been playing into this with the uh, kind words about uh, Eastland and Talmadge and right. uh, um, segregationists in the Senate. Um, they clearly, you know, she came after him on that. I, again, I don't know whether these are body blows or, um, you know, like certainly not knockout blows at this point. No. no. Um, but. Biden needs to keep from sticking his foot in his mouth on these things. Yes, uh, and it continued over the weekend. He just has, you know, he's Joe Biden. He's going to have a verbal gaffe almost every day. He made some passing comment about about you know, about, about uh, waitresses the other day. It was just awkward, and that's just that's just vintage Joe Biden. But I mentioned the millennial vote because um, it's not just Kamala Harris who'd like millennials. This is Pete Buttigieg's bread and butter, and this should be better O'Rourke's bread and butter, too. Yeah, I, I think the O'Rourke campaign is headed to zero. For You're waving bye-bye to Beto. Yes. I think uh, Buddha Edge is this year's Beto. Um, right. And, um, you know, he seemed to have a credible performance in the debates. Uh, well, is it? He has an authentic touch that most of the candidates don't have. Buttigieg. Yes. Yeah. So, for example, when they asked him about what was happening in South Bend. Um, it was good. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, I couldn't get it done. Um, which was about the only time in the night that a candidate wasn't bragging about they were the only one with uh, a black son that had passed uh, uh, a state-level support for abortion or whatever. That worked out well. Yeah, both of those, all those. That guy killed. Points. That guy killed. Maybe when Paul Butcher said there are three maybe of us it's time on to stage. St- maybe it's time to start polling on presidential experience and what voters are looking for in the way of experience because Buttigieg is 38 years old, I believe. He has never served in Congress. He has not governed a state. He is a mayor and of a city. And that's a negative? I'm sorry. Well, this is, this is where it's an interesting question. Yeah. He, is, he runs a city of 100,000 people or so, which is, you know, not a small city, but ain't a big city either. Um, but the question is, are Amer- will American people be comfortable with a 38-year-old you know, with, with relatively limited government experience? But then again, look at the man in the White House. <laughs> I think he's a little older than 40, but uh, his experience is somewhat less. So this does raise a question, gentlemen, and that is how much Donald Trump has changed the rules of all of this in terms of experience for office, but also experience on a debate stage. Aren't we now looking for more entertainment, thanks to Donald Trump in 2016? Well, certainly the Republican, the Republican debates drew a lot more than 18 million, uh, largely because of Trump, who continues to dominate the media scene. I, I see him as going all the way through, dominating the media scene. And one thing, I've heard a couple of smart political commentators, and not commentators, actually, but people who actually know something about politics, uh, talked about which of these Democrats would be able to stand up to Trump in a debate format. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, that that is uh, that's kind of an interesting question. I don't remember <laughs> Trump being a particularly effective debater in 2016. He was not so much effective in what he said. He was effective in he got through the primaries. Is not the main, going the main way debates. he was effective was in controlling the coverage. And that, right. for better and for worse, for Trump, he controlled. Mm-hmm. He dominated the conversation. Every debate ended up being a friggin' referendum on Donald Trump, beginning with the one in Cleveland where he makes a comment about Megyn Kelly. So each time the Republicans met, it was, what did Donald Trump yeah, do? He did wonderfully when he was on the debate with, on the stage with 20 other candidates. Yes. Because of his ability to attract attention and the media's fascination on him. Right. The presidential debates in the fall, which I thought you were asking about, uh, I don't think no. there's going to be a Bill Weld debate with Trump. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't think worked in Trump's favor because he had to split the audience in a way that uh, doesn't do well for him. Uh, he didn't do disastrously poorly, but right. um, I, I think any of these candidates would do at least as well as uh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, but I should have said, including Marianne Williams. But remember, I, I should have said, those, not yeah, the, remember, sorry, yeah. remember those debates when again, I don't remember how much exactly what Hillary and Donald Trump talked about. I do remember, though, Donald Trump walking around the stage and you know, yes. kind of hovering right. over her menacing. And again, this dominated the conversation. Trump's where, antics, right? Yeah, and that's where Hillary's conventional political approach, if she right. didn't turn around and say, what are you doing, creep? Right. Uh, so this gets back to Dave's point. Right. So, so this gets back to Dave's point so about which point Democrat So my point is, it's not just debates. It's yeah. not just debates. It's the whole... Campaign. How do they deal with Twitters? How right. tough are they when the president says things yeah. that he's going to say? It's not just the debate. Right. It's a whole series, the way he's going to conduct the campaign and uh, the way you're going to respond. And the question then becomes, would a traditional response a la Hillary win? Well, didn't win last time. So then the question is, well, you have to tempt- think hard. What do you do? Right. Well, the temptation is to out-Trump Trump. Yes. And yes. That has not worked out well. Didn't work out well for Marco Rubio in the primaries. Um, and uh, I think what the middle, the persuadable voters are looking for uh, is uh, someone that acts like an adult. Um, but at the same time, I think you're going to need a higher dose of authenticity than candidates have traditionally had. Um, what Trump does that is, mean? So um, Trump is terrible at reading a uh, speech from a teleprompter uh, of doing what uh, you know, politicians have, you know, have tried to do for ages, to be the JFK or the FDR. The authenticity. Authenticity is something Trump does really well, yes. which okay. is people think he's saying... Uh, not necessarily what's true, but what he thinks. Right. Um, and uh, so you need a candidate who will, at various points, in a controlled way, come back with something that yeah. um, humanizes them. Anybody um, stand out to so, you on that dimension? Well, so in 2018, uh, I think Beto O'Rourke did a terrific job of that. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, there was the moment in the debate where they asked the typical question of, uh, is there anything you like about your opponent? And right. and Ted Cruz turned it around to a, you know, a, a slight acknowledgement and then an attack. And uh, right. O'Rourke said, true to form, and stopped at that point. Uh, so this is where the Trump effect interests me, and in particular with Kamala. 
Um, I have been following her career for the better part of a decade now here in California since, well, in 2009, 2010, when she first ran for state attorney general. I've listened to a lot of her speeches, read a lot about her, followed her pretty closely. The debate was the first time where I've heard her talk about being scarred by busing when she was a little girl. And her campaign had this all set up, all planned. They magically produce a photo right after the debate. They're out selling T-shirts on her website with a photo of her on that. In this incredibly cynical time, we can agree this may be one of the most cynical ages ever, if, if not ever, in American politics. You can look at what Kamala Harris did and think, wow, what a touching moment. What a terrible thing to experience. Or you can think, my goodness, what a cynical approach to trying to get elected president. I'll stay away from that one. Yes. <laughs> but no, this is, this is where I think the age of Trump complicates things. On the one hand, you, we live in this age where we want a, we want a sympathetic narrative from our kids. It's one thing Trump did in 2016, which, which I think has been largely overlooked. We went from this, this string of, of candidates who ran on narratives, of sympathetic narratives. Right. Bill Clinton never knew his, his biological father, George Bush, <clears throat> kicked the bottle. Barack Obama you know, dealt with being biracial. Donald Trump blew that to smithereens. There's no sympathetic narrative about <laughs> Donald Trump. We could agree. <laughs> well, I, the thing for the thing for Harris, it, right. uh, for people it worked uh, for people who were Democrats, I thought it worked pretty well. It did, but, and but for a bunch right. of others, it's it's, uh, right. it's not going to play. They're going to say it's cynical. Right, but I raise this because this has been one thing missing from Kamala Harris's campaign to this point, where she is, you know, she is very telegenic. She checks off a lot of boxes for a Democratic candidate in terms of race and gender. Um, she gives a good speech. But her life story is not necessarily that that compelling and not that interesting right. when you get down to it. Now, no log cabin? No log cabin, no. There is no, I didn't walk 10 miles to school. Now she does something that makes her a sympathetic person. Yep. But I guess, again, I raise this because in the age of Donald Trump now, in this incredibly cynical age, some people will be very moved by that and other people will think, Ah, oh, gee, you know, really? And Doug Rivers is not going to join in on this conversation. <laughs> he, he's, he's uncomfortable, so let's, let's move on. I've said all I have to say. <laughs> I would just add, by the way, um, this is an interesting uh, situation with Joe Biden, by the way, because if anybody has a lot of, you know, drama to talk about in his personal life, it's Joe Biden. But yeah. I suspect his people are saying, you know, tread lightly on He's that. got a good yeah, favorable I'm, rating. The thing I would say about this is the format here is not good for the life story thing. I think Kamala pulled it off with uh, the, the busing thing that was completely unexpected and it sort of came at the right moment. Yeah, life, story, uh, life stories work great at national conventions when you're giving your acceptance speech. Right. Yeah. This is who I am. You're introducing yourself to right. the people who haven't been paying attention thus far. You've got a debate where you're the only other person on stage other than your opponent in the fall. Mm -hmm. um, you can do a bit of this. I empathize with you and so mm -hmm. forth. What was really amazing was to watch this format, yeah. which I do not understand why the parties go for this. Because um, Tom, Tom Perez, the chairman of the party, wants to be liked, plain and simple. You've got 20 cans. What are you going to do? Tell doesn't, him you can't doesn't want to make anybody mad, so he right. creates these ridiculous but, standards of 1% and 75,000 But you've got the, uh, the press, which for some reason has two tag teams of three people, which I didn't quite get. Uh, of course, that's yeah. FaceTime for them. They, right. To, that's they, all? They, they What's the get? controls the terms of the debates if right. they want to. Um, the, the second thing is, you know, allowing this hands up, which is just going to create problems for Democratic candidates later in the process. You see um, the New York Post? had a thing. New York Post said, raise your hand if you want to lose the election. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, no, it is. There's some kid in the bowels of the Brahoga National Committee just recording this and, and getting, then you've getting got the ad. These two minute uh, limited speeches, right. which most of them completely flubbed. They start on their canned line and only get to the answer to the question at the end yep. rather than saying yes or no. Now, let me tell you what I th- really think about this, yeah. um, right. which makes them seem inauthentic. Right. Um, you know, that someone asks you a question and you start, oh, I was talking to someone yesterday about this and... And it's completely disconnected to the question. Yeah. Does not seem authentic. Yeah. You want to know no. what not authentic is? That's what it is. No, it's, yeah, it's, uh, that's right. It's a terrible format for. I think the Democratic Party owes it to America to give us one more night of Marianne Williamson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She may have been the most authentic person on yes. the, that uh, stage in those two true. nights of Miami. Uh-huh. <laughs> she was amazing. Uh-huh. Now, if I go back to your office, Doug, how many of her books are on your shelf? <laughs> I bought him some just past week. <laughs> no, My I didn't. friends say that I could benefit from <laughs> more engagement. We all could her. use self-help, I imagine. But uh, <laughs> No, I've never said that. <laughs> okay. So we've been doing this conversation uh, every two months now, yep. um, and I want to keep doing it uh, every two months until we decide who's going to be. Until we do it every day? Until we do it every day. <laughs> until we either get a 45th or a 46th president. But let's just sum up here now. The state of the race right now, as you see it, Dave and Doug. I'm sorry. The state of the race right now, is it still Joe Biden's to lose or? I think it's Joe Biden's to lose, but it's easy for him to lose it. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think what we're seeing is it's coalescing to half a dozen candidates right. uh, are going to be viable. And the question is whether they can hold on so that we get these ridiculous displays of you know, large numbers of candidates on the stage. Um, but there were, you know, I mean, obviously Kamala Harris helped herself. Right. Uh, I think uh, Warren, Warren did fine, um, better than fine. Yeah. I think Biden and Sanders are still, you know, definitely yeah. uh, at or, uh, you know, are probably still the top two. Right. Uh, and then Buttigieg has been a surprise from the beginning and uh, continues to do well. Yeah. Um, everyone else. You know, I think they're struggling of how are they going to um, keep any attention at all. So maybe that's the biggest takeaway from this first debate, that we're going to see a very narrow field very soon and kind of a return to normalcy in some regards. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, no. So to what extent do, you know, does Bill de Blasio continue right. running? He can. It's not right. very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, or does he quit? Um, right. You know, there are a whole bunch of people who have serious jobs, U.S. senators, um, who you would think would not want to go through this process. I don't know why they ran in the first place, but right. uh, it's well, clearly not working for I them. I think, you know, they. I think everybody has a great, a greater expectations than right. uh, are normally going to be met. And then uh, once they're in, right. it's hard to say I'm out. And I, I do think one of the problems is going to be they're going to put pressure on the Democratic Party to say, well, you can't get it down that quickly. I, I'm running, still running in Iowa. So they can, right. they can stay in the game a long time, like Doug suggests, and they can say, I'm going to do well in Iowa and concentrate there and, and hope for that without having all these requirements of 130,000 voters, well, et cetera. What's the cost of the party to saying no? The cost of the party is saying no in that case is they're probably, if they, got, if they went from 23 mm-hmm. to the next debate, five or six, right. 
Six that costs us high. Mass. Yeah, I agree, but it's, it's still, still mass, high. But I think maybe slow starvation is the approach yeah. of the Democrats. Just right. keep raising the bar for debates and just yes. say, okay, you know, we're going to do two percent, one hundred thirty thousand. I'm going to yeah. do three percent and one hundred eighty thousand. Yeah. And just I, I, I thought they're sensible. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the Republican format in 2016 was much better, hmm. where they basically said, here's the first tier, right. and here's the second tier, and in that second tier. You're going to say, okay, if you do well in that, you might rise out. And uh, Carly Fiorina did. She rose out of that second debate and got got with the uh, uh, first uh, first team the debate. The press went after him very hard for the whole idea of the kitty table debate, and that's yeah. part of what's driving the Democrats. This yeah, time. I agree. It's, a, they yeah. won't appear to be fair. Yeah. But then if you're Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker and you got stuck on Wednesday night instead of Thursday, you don't feel very fair right now. You didn't get a larger audience. You didn't get your shot at Donald No, Trump. and Christian Gilliland has to feel the worst because right. – she got the least questions, had to interrupt. I, I think there for her, it's just too many people right. uh, think of her as Hillary right. in the sense of New York, senator, same sort of positioning. Right. So I, it's, I think your problem is too many people don't think of her. Well, that's right. Or when they do, they pass. Exactly. But uh, I think you're right. So I, let's let's throw a random date out there, Labor Day. Let's say you're going to start seeing Democrats getting out. Uh, look, I worked for Pete Wilson back in the day. Pete Wilson ran for president briefly in 1995, yep. and he got out around Labor Day. Why? He just wasn't able to collect money. And he right. had to look at a situation of I can keep campaigning. But you know what? Every day I campaign, you know, it's the old song, right. 16 tons. Yeah, <laughs> right. Another day older and deeper in debt. And uh, I think these other candidates are going to have to make that pragmatic decision. I can keep going to Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina, yeah. but I'm going to end up with a bill with that zip, I can't pay yeah. off. I think you're going to see some drop out. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a bunch stay in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, getting shut out of the debates may uh, cut the oxygen off from right. some, and if so, that's probably a good thing. So, you know, you can't really have an intelligent race till you're down to about three. Exactly. Well, but the first primaries are, the first primaries, the retail primaries, where TV isn't going to do it for you. In Iowa, they expect you to meet the candidates. Right. Uh, you know, you want to meet a candidate, you can pay $1,000, or you can go to Iowa and pretend you're an Iowa voter and you meet anybody. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people are going to stay in uh, on the grounds that they can, they, can, they can do well in those caucuses. And that keeps the pressure on the leaders to keep going back to Iowa also because they can't look as though they've forgotten Iowa. And Harris, I think that presents somewhat of a problem for Harris and some of the others who are looking at get by the first two into the third. I don't, I don't think you can finish fourth or fifth in Iowa. History is not kind to candidates who are not competitive in Iowa, New Hampshire. You can ask, right. really, you know, ask really Giuliani how it worked out for him in 2008. Right. Jeb Bush how it worked out in I 2016. I don't think you can run a campaign where you don't run in New Hampshire and Iowa. Right. I don't think you have to win there. There are plenty of candidates that won the nomination without that. But right. you can't get really slaughtered. You need right. to be in the top group in yep. those places. Yep, I agree. Okay. Gentlemen, I enjoyed the conversation. Same here. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States and those who would replace him. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us and tell your friends all about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, straight to your inbox weekdays. 
The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media. I'm proudly of that fact, but Doug Rivers is. His uh, personal handle on Twitter is at Doug Rivers. That's at Doug underscore Rivers. And he also can be found through YouGov, and that uh, address is at YouGov. That's Y-O-U-G-O-V. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.